When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, welcome back. So today I want to take some time to talk about a couple different items. I don't want to make this today's podcast about any one specific topic. I want to start off by talking about the oil market, um, some of the crazy moves that we've seen in the last you know, 48 hours, and, and maybe some of the broader implications of that going forward. I want to take some time to talk about the oil market as well as the bond market and, and the signal that they're sending, which... Is, is vastly different than the signal that is being sent by the stock market, which is, of course, much easier to, to I guess, manipulate with, with credit, with liquidity. Looking at you, Federal Reserve. Um, I, I want to take some time to talk about the precious metals markets, particularly the move today, uh, especially in silver, to, uh, to the downside, to a much greater extent than gold. Uh, I want to take some time to talk about the Fed, their balance sheet, monetization of debt, social security, and, and how they are running out of money much faster than, than expected. You know, surprise, surprise. And, and, and really some broader you know, implications of this slowdown and, and why I think partly because the slowdown happened so abruptly that the timeline for some of these things that I think a lot of commentators, including myself, were expecting in this next downturn, the timeline is just so compressed at this point in time, and it's uh, there, there's a lot to watch. There's a lot to follow. But anyways, I want to start off here. So you have all that to look forward to, so stick around for, for however long this will take today. But I want to start off with the, uh, with the oil market. Now, when I say oil market, yesterday this was primarily a problem for a lot of landlocked North American oil products, a massive drop in price. You know, the, the headline, kind of the benchmark U.S. product was, of course, uh, WTI, West Texas Intermediate, which started, you know, for context, late last week was trading, what, high, high teens, low 20s, somewhere in that ballpark, uh, opened up on, on Sunday and then into Monday, dropped um, down to like 15 in the $15 range. People are saying, wow, that's low. Uh, and then I kept checking it periodically uh, or, or I'd, you know, refresh my browser at zero hedge or whatever. And, and well, it was like single digits, $7. And then checked it again and it's down to like $2. And I'm checking again. I'm like, how much lower can it go? And of course the answer was always lower. Um, it went down to, to uh, you know, a a quarter and, and a nickel, a couple pennies. And I'm like, well, how much lower can it go? It went lower. It went down to negative $7.50. How much lower can it go? Well, it can go lower. It went down to negative, uh, I think the low was like around negative $40 a barrel. Now, this massive move to the downside, again, was largely specific to a lot of these heavily traded, especially WTI, but a lot of these, you know, U.S., um, landlocked oil products, oil blends and whatnot. Uh, a lot of them moved much, much lower or even into negative territory. Brent, which is not so much landlocked, 
did move to the downside yesterday, but but not as significantly. And, and part of the reason for this now, I mean, I'm, I'm not going to pretend to be an oil expert here, right? I'm I'm not, right? Uh, you guys you guys know that. But but part of the reason for this is is twofold. First of all, this was primarily the move down yesterday. It was primarily for these landlocked products because it's much more difficult to to offload those and and the storage that they have right now is filling up in places like Cushing, Oklahoma as well as you know various other storage facilities in North America they're filling up and that's a really worst case scenario for for you know shale oil producers or oil sand producers in Canada or whatever when storage fills up because they have nowhere to put their product it gets to the point where they actually had to pay people to take their product, hence the negative oil price. Why would they pay somebody to take their product? Why not shut down production? Well, a lot of these wells, it's not as easy as just turning off the faucet like your kitchen sink. Um, it, it, it's a process. It's, it's an expensive process to, to, uh, to cap these wells or to, to, to close them, even if they have viable you know, months or years left um, to close them. And then, you know, theoretically, open them back up again. That takes a lot of money, a lot of capital, and it's not something that any oil producer wants to do, right? It's, it's I don't know. Again, I'm not an oil expert, but I imagine it would be akin to, you know, what what is the efficiency on your, um, you know, if you're traveling down the highway at 70 miles an hour and you have to come to a full stop and then start back up again, that takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of gas relative to if you just kept cruising at 70 miles an hour because you're just losing a lot of energy to, to, to heat, to friction, and your brakes when you ultimately slow down and then you have to start back up again. Yeah, it's, it's I imagine, sort of like that, right? So nobody wants to do that, hence the negative oil price. The other part, part of this was that it wasn't just WTI, but it's also in particular, like their May contract, right? This is, you know, a futures market ultimately. And this is the May contract. And a lot of people were saying, well, you know, it's a May contract. It's mostly WTI. It's and, and a lot of North American products. Of course, WTI being the largest. It's really um, nothing to worry about uh, as, as far as the broader oil market. The June contract, you know, the, the, the May contract will come and go. We'll move into the June contract. That's where most of the trading will be pretty soon here. And then, you know, it'll be a different story. Well, funny enough, the June contract is now crashing. Not as significantly, but it's into, I think, the mid-teens. Um, and hey, guess what else is crashing? Uh, Brent Oil. Brent Oil, which for a long time has traded at a really significant premium to WTI, is now down uh, overnight as, as low as around like a little over $20 a barrel, which actually sounds... Um, pretty high compared to uh, compared to negative $40 but but $20 a barrel is just incredibly low um, for for Brent oil uh, in in context right um, so this is no longer just a WTI problem this is a broader oil market problem and and and, and so kind of the weird thing going on here is I, I see this as significant for two different reasons first of all there's clearly something going on in the oil market, right? This is clearly, to some extent, an oil market-specific problem. 
There is a problem in the futures markets, hence the massive negative price. Um, part of it was that traders did not anticipate the price actually going that low. Um, there was, um, uh, you know, uh, there's been a lot of discussion over the weekend and in, 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 in the last day or two about, you know, some broader risk to to the financial markets, to, to banks and whatnot, because of this. You know, there's been talk about, you know, what traders, what, what banks, hedge funds, et cetera, have been short, um, short or, or I should say long oil, or in some ways is affected by this, this oil move to the downside, right? Because if you're caught on the wrong side of this trade and your your position is large enough, I mean, that could be a that could be very problematic for you, right? There was the um, massive uh, Singapore-based oil company, uh, oil trading company, um, that went bust over the weekend. Once people found out that that there was massive amounts of fraud going on, and and there, um, they owe a lot of money, a few billion dollars to various banks, right? And, and how does the saying, the old saying, go that you know if if uh, if I'm paraphrasing. I don't remember. But, but but if if you don't pay on your mortgage, it, that's your problem. But if you and everybody in your block doesn't pay on your mortgage, that's all of a sudden the bank's problem. You know, when when people default on very large obligations, that turns into a, a risk to the financial market. Um, and so there's obviously something going on here. And and the other one was uh, USO, which is a a uh, a massive ETF that that uh, the world's largest oil ETF, um, which has today uh, suspended its creation process for its USO baskets. Um, basically, there's some concern about, you know, can USO, the ETF, actually survive this oil market crash? There's some people saying that, hey, you know, once this May contract, you know, comes and goes and we roll over into the June contract and a similar thing happens in the June contract, it could be over for them. Right? And, and, and the problem with that is that, first of all, USO makes up a huge amount of the volume um, in the futures markets, right? And so now, I mean, the futures markets, you know, CME group, sound familiar for those of you in the precious metal space, um, they're going to have a problem because they're going to have a massive hole that they can't fill in terms of, of volume and, and whatnot. Um, but then there's also, you know, all these potential people, Individuals, investors, hedge funds, institutional investors, etc., that may be holding USO, and, and USO could could move to zero, right? Could be destroyed, right? Um, that's not uncommon in the last couple of years. ETFs blowing up. Well, and again, this gets back to part of the problem with ETFs. But but a topic for another you know podcast. This is world's largest oil ETF. This isn't you know. Um, leveraged inverse VIX uh, that that blew up or the leveraged inverse or, or just the inverse VIX, I forget which one it was, that blew up back in, you know, the the, the winter of the first quarter of twenty eighteen when when VIX blew out. Um no, this is this is a, a massive ETF. And uh it'll be interesting to see what happens with that. Now the the other thing with this though is not just that there's something going on in the oil market. Obviously that's Right, and it, and I think part of it's on the paper side. Part of it's this very real supply oversupply problem, especially for landlocked oil. This is going to be hugely damaging to shale oil, 
and a lot of other oil producers going forward. I mean, I, I, I can't even fathom. I mean, yes, you're going to pay a lower price at the pump now. I mean, a problem with that is that Americans and a lot of people. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Around the world aren't really caring what they're paying at the pump because they're not having to pay a whole lot at the pump. They're not moving up. They're not driving a whole lot. But, you know, if you are driving consistently um, for whatever reason, yeah, you're going to pay a lower price. And, and that's a less of a, a, I guess, a tax, a less of a um, strain on consumers, right? Gasoline's getting very cheap in a lot of places. However, what about the other side of this? Um, first of all, shale oil which, by the way, not that long ago was like setting new records for production. I'm talking like February, January, somewhere in that ballpark. Uh, what, what happens when, when all of a sudden their production goes from, what, like 13 million barrels a day or 12 million barrels a day to like six or whatever it's ultimately going to settle at? Um, that's a lot of jobs. That's a lot of corporations that are going to go belly up, jobs that are going to be destroyed and, and likely never come back again because shale was such a terrible idea in the first place, at least not going to come back again until oil goes to, you know, 70, 80, 90, $100 a barrel. Um, that's, that's very damaging to the U.S. economy. Uh, but, but then on a global scale, you have a ton of producers out there that depend on that oil for their, their country's finances. Obviously, Saudi Arabia is a big one. Russia is another big one. Uh, and, and you know what they say about Saudi oil, you know, it's a couple doll- dollars a barrel. That's the cost to bring each barrel out of the ground. Well, yeah, but to each barrel, there's that cost tied, but to each barrel, there's also a huge cost tied to it, um, linked ultimately to their country's finances, whether it's, it's, you know, welfare programs or military spending or whatever, um, in Saudi Arabia, a lot of their economic prosperity comes from the, the price of oil, the, the fact that they can extract oil so cheaply and then sell it at such a high level. And, and when, when that doesn't happen, now I understand Saudi Arabia is looking to sell it at a discount. They're the ones looking to flood the market. And I think it's, I think it's a long-term play. They, they want to crush U.S. shale. And, and that makes sense to me, right? Crush U.S. shale, you have a larger market share. You may even be importing to the United States again, in, in at least in larger quantities, um, yeah, it's a win-win. But in the interim, you're crushing your, your country's finances. You're crushing a ton of Middle Eastern countries' finances, uh, Russia's, and, and, and many other countries. I mean, it's just, it'll be interesting to see how this ends. Now, that's not the other thing I'm talking about here, though. Um, the, the move in the oil market, I think, is representative of a, I think of, of it's a real signal. Of, of what's going on in the U.S. economy. Now, maybe not the move to negative $40 a barrel, but certainly the move down in the June contract, the move down in Brent crude, is representative of 
poor economic growth, right? Much more representative than the stock market. If you're seeing the price of oil collapse, now, yes, there's the oversupply problem. Yes, there's the fact that the U.S. is hitting new all-time highs before this all started. Um, and, of course, Saudi Arabia and Russia more recently said, hey, we're going to flood the market, or at least Saudi Arabia did. And, and the production cut last week was really not what I think many people were expecting. I think it was last week now, yeah. It wasn't what people were expecting. I get all that. But, but the root of this problem... All of that could be handled, and, and the price of oil would be higher. I don't know how much higher, but it would be higher. But we have a huge demand problem. <laughs> Airline, um, you know, jet fuel, demand for jet fuel, which is a, you know, one of the finished product, products, I guess, but obviously impacts crude demand, is cratered. I'm sure gasoline demand has cratered. I mean, across the board, it's just been terrible for the for the oil market. And I think that's more representative of the the economy right now, the, the price of oil, or certainly at least the drop in oil demand and, and finished products and whatnot, compared to something like the stock market, which I think sold off yesterday, um, but but as a whole is still, uh, you know, in, in the case of the Dow Jones, many thousands of points above its low from March. It is down today, by the way, as I'm recording here in the morning, uh, over 400 points, but still, uh, you know, the S&P is several hundred points above where it was. You know, the other market that I think is is telling a decent story here of the economy is the treasury market. Now, I think the treasury market's missing out on on something huge here. Uh, you know, they're they're so focused on what's right in front of them that they they can't see this. What whatever analogy you want to use, they can't see this big. Um, cliff they're about to go off the side of. They can't see this big wall in front of their face. Whatever. Uh, the treasuries, treasury market, U.S. treasury markets are missing a huge risk of inflation right now. There's not, I don't think, much of a default risk with the U.S. government, but there's a huge risk of, of inflation. And and they're not pricing that in. Uh, on the long end, the, you know, the intermediate, the short end, that it's just not being priced in. But Nonetheless, in, in today's reality, even if it doesn't make sense all the time, the bond market is what still kind of prices in, um, prices in risk for the economy. It's, it's a hedge play, right? Hedge against risk assets. It's the safe, um, it's a safe asset, right? Safe haven market. Well, anyways, um, five-year five year yields as of today, crashing. New all-time lows. And, and of course, that translates to new all-time high in prices, right? Because yields, prices, they move inversely. So five-year uh, five year yields all-time low. Um, the U.S. 10-year is very close to uh, to its um, low earlier, you know, this is back in March when the stock market had had crashed and, and, and bond yields um, were pretty low around that time period as well. Uh, I think they may have pre- preceded the actual crash by maybe a week or something like that. Um, but they were you know, below, I think, four, 40 basis points. Um, they're moving down pretty significantly as well. And so you have this weird situation where, where the bond market is flying up, you know, despite what I would argue is a huge inflation risk on, on the long end. But moving to the upside significantly in terms of price, moving down in yields. But the stock market hasn't gotten that message yet. 
In fact, you know, Zero Hedge included a pretty you know, nifty graph, as they generally do, showing the five-year yield and the S&P tracking each other pretty well. You know, this goes all the way back to you know, some point in January. Um, tracking each other pretty well. And what you see here is, is this divergence that takes place you know, uh, around or a little bit after when the stock market starts to move to the upside after its you know, crash in the second half of May. Right? That coincided with, in the five-year, uh, you know, a uh, yield around 40 basis points, right? Roughly speaking, maybe a little bit below that. Um, and, and that coinc- you know, that, that equaled a S&P level of about 2,200. Well, today, you know, the S&P level is, I'll, I'll bring it up in here for you. But the S&P level today is about 2,700. Again, down today, but over 27, you know, 2,770. Well, uh, if if the S and P were to you know close that gap between it and the U S ten year bond, you know we would be looking at the S and P under twenty two hundred. And so you know it begs the question: how how much longer can that go on, or is that going to be maybe the new norm? If 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 everyone's throwing in the towel and saying, hey, the stock market's just a product of credit growth, of liquidity, of the Fed, don't fight the Fed. Well, you know, can the stock market go up despite massive unemployment, despite uh, a cratering oil market, cratering oil demand, uh, and of course, the bond market yields moving to the downside significantly? Can that, uh, I guess we'll find out. But it, um, it, something tells me that no, I mean, I, eventually the Fed will once again, at least temporarily, lose control of the stock market and, and we're going to have another leg down. Now, is that going to, you know, retest the lows for March or is it going to blow through that? You know, that's beyond my, my pay grade, I guess as I'd say, but, but, uh, but the real economy, which is what I think matters to most of us, continues to show signs of, of just utter collapse in, in demand, utter collapse in, in, you know, almost every metric, right, for the most part. Maybe online shopping, maybe you know grocery purchases. You know, maybe those are doing fine, but otherwise, um, yeah, utter utter collapse. So moving on from that, I, I want to talk about what I said there, kind of that don't fight the Fed and whatnot. You know, I saw an article. This was over from uh, TrustNotes.com. I, I don't know, but it showed up in my recommended. You know, Fed now owns. Um, this is an article talking about how the the Fed now owns as of their most recent uh, update, 29.1% of U.S. GDP in their balance sheet, $6.4 trillion. That's huge. And I think that's a good way of putting into context just how large their balance sheet is. 29.1% of GDP. Now, you know, not that long ago, and by the way, GDP is crashing, right? So it's probably higher than 21. It might be closer to 35% or who knows, 40% with how bad the economy is right now. But but to put that in context, you know, it, it, was, it was a full you know, two plus trillion dollars lower than that not all that long ago. 
right? And so not all that long ago, you know, the GDP was, you know, it was more like 20% of U.S. GDP, the balance sheet, right? 29.1% of U.S. GDP. And that's in contrast to the national debt, which currently is, is well over 100% of GDP. Um, but, but I think that both of those numbers are likely to go up over the next, I just, you know, if we're, if we're going to pick a timetable, this will be maybe most evident, you know, over the next two years. You know, if we're looking spring of 2022, you know, we could be looking at a U.S. debt um, in the ballpark of 150, 100, you know, if GDP is cratered significantly since then, 150, 180% of GDP. I hesitate to say 200% because that would be, well, you know, closer to like $40 trillion. And I don't know if it'll go quite that high, but, but maybe 150, 160% of GDP. And, and the Fed balance sheet, a little bit more difficult to predict, but, but I fully anticipate it being, you know, in the ballpark of 60, 70, 80% of GDP. Who knows? Maybe it'll be 20 trillion in that ballpark by then. Um, but, but increasing at a rapid pace. And, and it, you know, there's this other article that I wanted to discuss here, which I think plays well into to this topic here. And it, it was from Market Watch um, by a Paul Brandis published, uh, or at least revised today, I think, I don't know, published, I think, a couple days ago. Uh, titled, this is an opinion, thanks to COVID-19, Social Security's day of reckoning may even be closer than we thought. Now, I would argue that this is not just COVID-19. COVID-19, as I've said before, is just the pin that has pricked this bubble, knows nothing of the bubble. It didn't create these problems in the Social Security uh, fund or anything like that. But the, the gist of this is that by some estimates, uh, Social Security was the trust fund for Social Security was predicted to run out of money by 2035. However, with this downturn, that prediction, according to, uh, um, let's see here, by Alicia H. Munnell, the director of the Center for Retirement Research at Boston College, as well as a Market Watch columnist, that date has become uh, two years earlier, that, that date in which this is expected to run out, 2033. Now, for context, which, which I appreciate in this article, they give context during the Great Recession and the years after that. During the Great Recession, um, the, the estimated date for when it runs out of money moved from 2041 to 2037 because of what that did to, to government finances, because people were drawing on it earlier, and because less people were paying into it. And then, you know, following the Great Recession to, you know, early 2020 or whatever, uh, that estimate of when it runs out of money moved from 2037 to 2035. And now with this recession, we're down to 2033. Now, you know, I guess it makes sense in my mind that, that you can't probably extrapolate a massive um, decline or massive compression of that timeline. Because as you, you know, if we're talking about 100 years out and you say, well, in a recession, you know, the, the date moved from 100 years out to 95 or 90 years out. Um, well, if it's 20 years out, you, nec- you can't necessarily say it's going to move from 20 to 15 or 10 years out because that's, you know, percentage wise, that's a huge percentage relative to the other. And I, I, I don't know if we can extrapolate that necessarily. Right. But, I, you know, 2033, I think just like we should take that with a grain of salt, as we did when people were probably saying, yeah, I mean, don't worry. Yes, it moved from 2041, but only to 2037. Well, 
you know, in since then it's moved all the way down to 2033 when Social Security is, you know, the trust funds expected to run out of money. Um, I would expect that before this, you know, before the end of the year, that maybe that estimate's going to move down to 2031, right? And in a year or two after that, maybe 2030, 2029, right? Closer and closer. Of course, the, the problem with this is that yeah, who cares if Social Security, the trust fund, runs out of money? Is Greenspan, Alan Greenspan, you know, the, the Fed chairman for a long time prior to, to ben, ben Bernanke said, uh, you know, the maestro, they call him. Uh, as he said, you know, the, the U.S. government can guarantee, I'm paraphrasing, any amount of debts for as long as possible. What they can't guarantee is the purchasing power of that dollar. And I think that's another problem with Social Security, and, and, and it's hardly just that fund, but, but another problem is that they are not factoring in, much like the bond market, but, but they have a much more diff- it's not their job to factor it in necessarily, whereas the bond market is a market, it should be on top of that type of stuff. Social Security is not factoring in um, secular inflation, which is problematic. Imagine, I mean, we're dealing with, you know, supposedly, prior to all this, this downturn, the official inflation was you know, around 2%, maybe a little higher, maybe lower. And social, so Social Security made their, their cost of living adjustments somewhat relative to that. I think there'd be a lot of people, including myself, that would say that they didn't you know, probably make enough adjustments, especially relative to what real inflation was. But whatever. They had to make those cost of living adjustments, and that affected their, you know, the money going out. Well, what happens when your trust fund, which, if I remember correctly, owns like a lot of U.S. government debt, which, by the way, is yielding how much again? You know, less than one percentage point. What happens when inflation is is uh, six, seven, ten percent, right? Um, even if you don't match that, even if you just make a cost of living increase of four percent. That's a huge drain on your fund, especially if you know the, the assets in your trust fund, like like bonds, just aren't you know making up that difference, right? Do you understand the problem here that this that this could present? Now, as I said, you know the trust fund. It's, it's not like when the trust fund runs out that the U.S. government's just not going to pay Social Security uh, recipients. No, that's they're they're going to pay them anyways. There just probably won't be a trust. There'll be some other process that they will do it through. But it's going to weigh on our government's finances more and more as, as, as uh, you know, baby boomers um, age and retire. And as, you know, the obligations stack up higher and higher and the U.S. government has more and more. I mean, it's, it's going to cut into our budget. It's going to add to the deficit more and more, in theory, as it becomes a larger and larger amount of our budget, right? Um, and, and we have to finance that debt eventually with with more bonds, right? Um, but but the crazy thing about this is that this, you know, the social security system, which is clearly not built to last, you know, it may not make it a hundred years. Maybe it will. We'll see. Um, but certainly going to be far different than what it was, you know, fifty years ago. And and it's 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 only one of many programs, one of many institutions that was not built to last, not built to survive in an environment of high inflation, not built to survive in a high deficit um, environment, uh, 
I mean, Social Security is one, but I mean, pension funds are another huge problem, whether they're federal, state, county, city, whatever. Um, Those are simply not built to survive in that type of environment, right? As are a lot of the ways that individuals and and soon-to-be retirees or retirees choose to, you know, store their money to, to, you know, preserve their wealth. Those that aren't willing to, to maybe go into something like a mutual fund that has exposure to some risk assets, oftentimes will will put their money in something that earns them something, right? Better to be in the financial system versus cash under the mattress, or God forbid, <laughs> silver and gold, um, which I will get to here in a minute or two. Uh, and, and I guess I get that, you know, that I don't know if the counterparty risk is worth it, but I get that, you know, throw it into a money market fund, throw it into um, some CDs or whatever, something low yielding, something safe, U.S. Treasury debt. But, but the problem with that is, is, again, that style of saving, of savings is not built to survive, to, to be viable in a high inflation environment. Again, in theory, some of those products, the yield on them will move up just as inflation will. However, I suspect that there's going to be a lag, just like the, the Fed is going to you know, wait forever to move their, their Fed funds rate up to try and crush, crush inflation. Um, just like U.S. Treasury bonds are going to be behind and in, in, in kind of pricing in this inflation, so will a lot of these other um, low-yield, you know, safe uh, funds such as, as, as CDs, such as money markets and, and whatever, they're going to be behind the game in terms of, of pricing this inflation. Now, eventually, some of those may. Maybe the Fed funds rate won't, but at some point, the U.S. Treasury market will price that inflation, and it's going to be a massive popping of a bubble. I mean, imagine what happens when the yield on a bond goes from um, sub-1% to 2%, to 3%, to 5%, to, to, to double digits maybe on a 10-year I mean, hey, that's what the U.S. government used to have to deal with in terms of, and who knows, maybe that won't happen because the whole treasury market will just become synthetic. The Fed's just going to monetize the whole thing. There won't be a treasury bond market anymore, which I find, I mean, that's, that presents plenty of its problems of its own because it's not only retirees or pension funds that are counting on those treasury bonds, but it's also you know banks and whatnot for, for capitalization purposes and whatnot. What I mean, what happens then? Can you just make the whole thing synthetic? Uh, so maybe that will happen. I don't know, but but you know that the, the, the collapse in that price is is huge. You know when it, when it starts pricing inflation. You know there's so many strategies to save and retire. There's so many funds such as social security or pension funds or or or, or even just mutual funds, four hundred one ks, IRAs. A lot of those are not built to survive or thrive in a high inflation environment, which, yeah, finally brings me to precious metals. Because guess what? Precious metals are built to survive and thrive in that type of environment. They are hedges against inflation. Many people on Wall Street would say that that's one of their primary goals, other than, you know, I've I've gone over some of the other reasons that institutional money may like precious metals at times. Um, They're a hedge. Now, today... Because I did say I wanted to do an update on the precious metals price, and look at that precious metals podcast here, and I'm doing it over 30 minutes in. But price of silver is down significantly 
you know, over the weekend yesterday. It was still over $15 an ounce, and as I'm recording here, uh, in the region of fourteen sixty nine, um, down over half a dollar. Um, to, to add to that, the uh, gold market has been down as well. Um, as I speak, down around sixteen eighty. Not as significant, though. I mean, all things considered, uh, it, it was only I think yesterday it had regained uh, seventeen hundred dollars, and so it's, it's not a huge drop. Um, but, but the gold to silver ratio has moved up significantly. Now I haven't checked products, which is really what matters for us in terms of gold to silver ratio. What's the ratio between a silver and a gold eagle, or a generic silver bar and a generic gold bar, or whatever? But the gold to silver ratio has moved up from you know around you know 111, 110 in that ballpark, um, up as high as as 114 and, and change. Right, almost 115 to one, uh, showing basically that that gold is outperforming silver again, um, or at least to the downside, it's not moving as as significantly. But again, you know, we're looking long term here. I, I I imagine that that what's going on in the silver market, in particular, but also the gold market right now. Two things: first of all, people are thinking, well, economic demand is down. That means silver should be falling, you know, if oil is falling, so should silver. And I get that argument. Of course, the problem with that is that a lot of mines are closed right now. There's a massive amount of pent up physical demand for silver. I mean, it's, it's hard to really make that argument unless you're just some person that's, that's, you know, unless you're an algorithm or some person that doesn't have a you know, decent knowledge of what's happening right now in the precious metals markets. And of course, what's happening on, on the futures markets right now, which is, which is a lot of, of, uh, craziness in terms of, um, you know, maybe a Ponzi scheme, maybe a, a not a Ponzi scheme, but, but some sort of a fractional reserve system slowly but surely falling apart right now. Um, so maybe that's, and part of it, I think, is that, yes, the, the goal or the, the oil market and its blow up as well as the, the drop in stocks today could be influencing precious metals as well, that, that they're selling off as they do sometimes when those other assets sell off because somebody's looking to you know, they margin calls or, or close some position. I get all of that as well. Um, but not, not a whole lot has changed for silver and gold other than, hey, we have a little bit more systemic risk, a little more risk to the financial system this week than we did last week because of the move in the precious metals prices or the oil price. Um, I mean, the economic downside is has still, we, we have yet to really, I think, um, plumb those depths. We're still a ways away from that. And and the recovery, I mean, we, a lot of people have yet to to figure out that I think the recovery is going to be very drawn out and very slow and, and painful recovery uh, when it does ultimately come. Um, and, and, of course, a lot of people haven't figured out this whole inflation thing. A lot of people haven't figured out this, this debt problem in, in so many different levels of the economy going forward. And so precious metals are still, you know, especially silver. I mean, gold hasn't really come down that it's gone up in this in, in this whole backdrop over the last couple of months. Silver has not, as a whole, um, still very well positioned going forward, especially if that gold to silver ratio, when it comes down. Um, of course, don't take any of this as investment advice. I think you guys are all um, can make these decisions for yourself. And if and if that's not the case, you know, find somebody with some license or or whatever. But but. Uh, yeah, I'm not really discouraged by the move downside, and, and I would be interested to see, you know, what's the real change in the physical market, right? Um, you know, 
are our products, retail products, uh, have they actually moved down in price significantly? You know, I know I'm, I'm looking now at Scottsdale, and it looks like they're still, you know, linked to the price. There's still a very, pretty decent premium on Scottsdale products, but they have moved to the downside. Um, but is that the case across the board, or are a lot of these dealers going to move their premiums up to, to make sure that, you know, and understandably so in today's environment, make sure that they're not selling silver below, you know, $18, $19 an ounce or whatever the bottom is right now. But anyways, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Uh, give me feedback in the comment section, shoot me an email, whatever, on, on, on your idea of this format. But as always, I'd like to thank every one of you um, from the bottom of my heart for tuning into today's podcast. And God bless.